Hello everyone and welcome to Space Spiels. My name is Paige Kaufman and I am an undergraduate astronautical engineering student at the University of Southern California. On this podcast, we will talk about all things aerospace. We will discover how people got where they are in industry and their experience of the culture and community on the way. Enjoy. Hello everyone. Welcome to this week's episode. I am recording from my good old home of Sacramento. It's my mom's birthday this weekend. Shout out mom. Happy birthday. Lots of birthdays this month, but I'm recording from home. So if you hear my dog squeaking their toy in the background, that would be why. But today, you know, I say this in every intro, but we have a really exciting episode and I mean it this time. I mean it every time, but I really mean it this time. Today I'm talking to Bill Murray and Bill, wow, where do I even start? So Bill went to USC, he got his undergraduate degree at USC and then he went to Purdue and got a master's and he has worked at SpaceX, he's worked at Blue Origin, but most notably he's helped to found Ursa Major, the propulsion company. So I have Ursa's website up right now. I'm gonna go ahead and read you a little bit of a blurb so that you know it's really eloquently written. I'm not gonna <laughs> rephrase it, just gonna read it right from the website uh, so that you know a little bit about what they do. So Ursa Major is the leading independent rocket propulsion provider and a critical player in building the defense industrial base in the United States. As the first American company to fire an oxygen-rich staged combustion engine, a milestone previously only achieved by Russian engine makers, Ursa Major provides reusable, high-performing propulsion systems to commercial space enterprises, defense contractors, and the Department of Defense for launch, hypersonics, and national security missions. So, you heard it right here. They're a propulsion company. They build rocket engines. Super cool. That's what I do in my club at USC, so it's like even more exciting to talk to him. Bill was so friendly and we even got a little philosophical towards the end, so you have to stay tuned for that. It was amazing. Everything I'd like out of a conversation. A little bit of context. Uh, Bill was one of the earlier members of RPL, the Rocket Propulsion Lab at USC. So if you hear that acronym thrown around, that is what it is. It's a student-led rocketry team that he played a huge role in. So he'll talk about that a little bit at the beginning, but then he'll get into Ursa Major's uh, history and his experience there, some life advice. It's really a great conversation all around. So I hope that you enjoy. All right. Well, Let's get into it. So the first, I like to start at the beginning. So give us some context. How did you get interested in aerospace? Was there a particular moment growing up or did it happen gradually? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think when I was, uh, let's go back to when I was three or two, you know, that's uh, where it all started. I just remember having a space shuttle, uh, little toy and uh, just obsessed with uh, anything that was off the ground and um, in space in the air, what have you. So as a child, I was continually interested in those things, those subjects, just fascinated by that sort of thing. Um, and in high school, I actually applied to the Air Force Academy as a sophomore. I applied to a program to start talking to, to people there and was interviewed by a colonel and, and went down that route before I uh, essentially just decided to go to civilian school. So, you know, USC was on the list of other colleges that I applied for. Uh, got some scholarship money there and just, you know, sat down at USC. So if anything, it's, uh, it's like that, that, that meme, uh, I don't know if you've seen it where you've got like four corners and it's like men t tend to want to do one of these four things. And it's like, 
they like dinosaurs or being a fireman or outer space. And I'm like, I just kind of picked that as a child and uh, didn't really change my mind. So, and it was funny too, in high school, or in, in hindsight throughout college, you know, a lot of people obviously, and it's fine to waver on what your degree choice is and where you want your career to go. And I just never once questioned uh, aerospace, just that's it. That's what I'm doing. Yeah. That's what I'm here to do. So I don't really have a whole strong reason why, but that's that's the story. It's pretty pretty simple. Well, starting from two or three years old, that's pretty record breaking of when the people say that it started <laughs> to click for them. So, you know, and the dinosaur thing. I have a I've been having a big, you know, dinosaur obsession recently. My favorite question to ask people about their favorite dinosaurs. So Maybe space and dinosaurs are everyone's favorite fixations. Go ahead and give us a brief overview of your experience once you got to USC uh, in RPL, the Rocket Propulsion Lab there. Yeah, no, that's where everything really took off, no pun intended. But I joined USC as an aerospace student. Wasn't really aware of what engineering really meant, you know, as, as a practical field of study and what it was like to do it. And, uh, you know, once I got into classes, I realized, of course, that I wanted to do more than just go to class. So, um, you know, it really started with trying to join the aero design team, realizing that there were too many people on the airplane team. And I heard about this team uh, full of kids that just like to light things on fire in the desert. So that sounded cool. (laughs) And so I walked over to Rocket Lab and I think the USC Rocket Lab technically founded in 2004, debatable 2004 or five, but then really got steamed 2006. So I was joining a team that was like two or three years old, right? Uh, still small, uh, you know, in rented lab space that they're no longer in. And um, yeah, just it was led at the time by Ian Whittinghill and David Reese were the two founders of the, of the lab. Um, and they were really kind of my mentors as, as I joined as a so, sorry second semester freshman. So yeah, I just I joined the lab. I did the dirty work, you know, as any freshman would, and was sanding carbon fiber and um, making a fin alignment jig and doing all of that, and just really got hooked on it. Um, and funny enough, too, in terms of talking about my experience, and maybe I can weave in some of the people I met too. That's when Tim Ellis joined as well, uh, oh. and. The, you know, the CEO of Relativity, he and I were the ones sanding fins together in Rocket Lab as freshmen. That's um, crazy. Yeah, so um, my experience grew. Sophomore year is when, at the end of my sophomore year is when I started to try to really, uh, you know, I don't know what the right word is, but, you know, try to vibe for a leadership position. But for a good reason, you know, I, I felt as if, um I was incredibly passionate. You know, I, I was spending an inordinate amount of time in the lab. Uh, this is when we were building our uh, Del Grande rocket, the second version of it and flying it. Um, you know, I was starting to learn a lot more about all the different technical disciplines required to go design and build one of these things and just really wanted to add more of my time and passion to the lab. We were starting to deal with some leadership changeover anyway, people graduating, moving on. And, uh, yeah, that's when junior year and senior year, uh, I was, uh, you know, co-leading the lab with Alec Leverett, um, who's now at Ursa Major, by the way. And uh, <laughs> we're both working solids here now. It's funny. And so we were, yeah, my experience junior and senior year was really, um, you know, leading the lab, leading some of the design work, uh, leading Silver Spur 3, which was our 
first true demo of the flight loading that we thought the space shot would have. Um, so we designed and knocked that out my freshman year of junior uh, or uh, first semester of junior year. And uh, that was cool. That's that's when it really just everything clicked for me. I was in the right spot because we flew that that rocket zero to Mach four in four seconds. Uh, and uh, same max Q that we were estimating for Traveler, uh, 80,000 feet, no section to the ground. But that was just that's it. That's when everything clicked for me that, yeah, I was in the right spot doing the right thing. And um, yeah. yeah, you know, so. Just to capitalize on the last couple of years at USC, um, I actually helped work on and test the first composite eight-inch diameter full-length traveler motor, which exploded. Um, We had a design review on, or sorry, a failure investigation after school hours where we invited some SpaceX people because one of the folks (laughs) in the lab had an internship there. Uh, Turns out we invited the head of Dragon um, and... After the presentation Alec and I gave, he walked up to both of us and was like, yeah, so you want to just come work at SpaceX? I was like, sure, when? It was November. You know, it was like Thanksgiving. He's like, yeah, like like now? I don't know, like January? <laughs> so I called my parents. and I was like, yeah, I'm taking a semester off to go work at SpaceX. And they're like, what is SpaceX? Why are you throwing away your education to go at, to this, like, no-name startup? I was yeah. like, I don't know. It seems cool. Um, you know, I, I knew who SpaceX was. It was before they uh, they did they flew to the space station before they did any Dragon flights and stuff. So um, then I took a semester off. My second semester junior year, I was working at SpaceX while still running the lab in my off hours. So I would come, you That's know, cool. work Gosh. a full day at SpaceX and then hit the lab, work until God knows when. I remember my routine was get off work at from SpaceX at like eight uh go try to eat some dinner and run a lap at the track uh, from like to nine and then stay in the lab until after midnight um and did that for a semester and then got back to trying to fly traveler and during that time uh i had worked a lot with alec leverett on submitting the first fa documentation to fly to space because that first semester senior year was our first shot at flying traveler okay. um and so i just straight up called the faa and they didn't know how to respond to me uh, it was a bizarre experience for both sides uh, because I don't think any student group had really tried. I knew Embry Riddle at the time they had they had some waiver to go to space. So there was no standard operating procedure with FAA to do this. So I helped craft the presentation, the documentation they needed, which included doing six stop simulations. You know, all the things that feel a lot more routine now, probably. But um, you know, and then working with the Bureau of Land Management in Nevada on the dispersion analysis and everything, uh, and d- developing that that uh, rocket, you know, over the summer and into that semester, senior year. So we built the first traveler, and I don't know, I could get this wrong, but we may not have fully static fired the full motor yet. We just built yeah. the rocket, um, okay. and then literally we had the whole team ready to go. We're packing up stuff the night before we were about to leave, and BLM said no, uh, they were not going to permit the launch of traveler. Um, and I remember uh, our CEO here or at US, uh, I'm going to get this all mixed up, at Ursa Major, Joe Lorienti, was also in the lab. Um, and Joe was helping me communicate with the folks at, at, with BLM to try and get approval at two in the morning. Yeah. You know, we had our sat phones that we were required with the FAA to call off, you know, the FAA flight patterns or the, the aircraft flight patterns around uh, Nevada. And 
we were all ready to go, but yeah, BLM shut it down last second and didn't give us approval. So the whole team went up anyway to do like a scaled demo of, of just getting the vehicle up there and, and going through yeah. operations and stuff. But that was a huge setback. You know, that was pretty devastating. And so, um, yeah, you know, the second semester was really about, we still had the airframe, right? Um, we were on, we were a little nervous about the propellant that we had made. So we, we made another static fire and I think tested that, you know, and then started designing our ATV vehicles, which are the avionics test vehicles because uh, Rocket Lab did and still does have uh, a hard time with avionics, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, but uh, yeah, the, I mean, that's my experience, you know, so worked at SpaceX, uh, for one summer, a full semester, worked at Winnie Hill Aerospace for two summers as well throughout that time. Uh, and, you know, just loved the lab. You know, I mean, I was I was working a full time job at the lab the whole time while I was in school, graduated right. in seven semesters somehow. Uh, loved it. And it was a whirlwind. But that's my whole story of like that yeah. that section of my my background. That's awesome. Wow. So much hands on experience and so many great people around you. I mean, those names you're dropping and they're their backgrounds are insane. That's crazy. It's yeah, it's it, it is interesting to see where a lot of the founding members have gone. And I think it's still part of the story of the lab where, you know, SpaceX and Blue Origin, we some of the first uh, student interns that were at those companies came from the lab. Um, you know, David Reese, a founding member, he's at Aerospace Corp now, uh, you know, a, a high level director there. Um, Ian Whittinghill, still Whittinghill Aerospace with his dad. Uh, but then yeah. you've got Tim Mellis, who founded Relativity. You've got Joel Orienti, who founded uh, Ursa Major. Uh, and I helped Joe start that company in which we've got, I think, five members of my class of Rocket Lab working here at Ursa Major. Um, wow. Scott Macklin, who was head of propulsion for Virgin Orbit, um, was leading the lab uh, my sophomore year. Um, your director of mission assurance here at Ursa Major was leading the lab my sophomore year too, Jordan Fornes. Um, lots of names, right? Jordan Noon, right, was uh, was took over the lab after I left, and he was a CTO with Tim Ellis at Relativity. Um, but yeah, just a very very unique cradle, I think, for just teaching everyone the hardest stuff that you, you know, the hands-on stuff. You know, I think that was super critical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, after all of your internships, I know that you went to grad school. You went to Purdue, correct? Mm -hmm. Why? How did you make that decision? It was very easy. Um, <laughs> I was talking to a SpaceX technician, and he said, these MIT kids are smart. They can't turn a wrench. The Purdue kids are just as smart, and they can turn wrenches. So I said, okay. And then I applied to <laughs> Purdue. I thought it was in New York uh, when I applied. I yeah. only applied to one school. It was Purdue. Oh, and then wow. I got in and got, you know, research, whatever, uh, you know, arrangement to, to pay for it. But that was it. Wow. I tend to be impulsive and <laughs> pick one track and just commit. So yeah, that's how I picked it. It's worked. So <laughs> that's good. Also, David Reese, one of the founding members, was there as a PhD student. So I knew of that, some of the heritage there, right? And uh, it's like, well, if David picked it, then got to be the right place. <laughs> it is a killer combo, the USC and Purdue degrees. Mm -hmm. for sure. um, okay, so let's let's skip to URSA. Let's go ahead and skip to that founding. So how did you know that the time was right? And how did you like, find the courage to join Joe when he 
propose starting Ursa? And what was the timeline to when he started to talk to you? Give me the yeah. rundown. Um, well, it'll follow a similar story to the Purdue one. Uh, you know, <laughs> I was, Joe and I were both working at Blue Origin uh, after I graduated. So this is 2014, 15, after I'd graduated with my master's at Purdue. Um, and I was doing a pretty cool program, rotation program at, at Blue Origin, where I was able to jump from group to group every four months, like an extended internship, but uh, really awesome experience. I got to report to the president at the time. Um, and yeah, I was very, uh, very lucky to, to have that opportunity. Um, and I think it's part of the story because I was able to gather a ton of different key areas of expertise that helped me just jump in headfirst to the, this company. Um, there's like systems analysis, thermal analysis. I did valve design. I did CFD. I did turbo machinery. I did a lot of different things. Um, and so when Joe came to me saying that he wanted to start this company uh, building rocket engines, um, yeah, I was like, yeah, sure. You know, um, I didn't. Yeah, I was pretty committed because it sounded like a cool idea. And really, uh, my ambition was just to get more experience. Like, that's it. I didn't think much beyond that. Um, also life is short, you know, why not take chances? Uh, and I figured if he could figure out how to pay me for two years before it went under, it'd be worth it. Like it was like two to three years in my mind, uh, to where that trade-off was like worth the plunge. And, um, that was it. He's like, Hey, can you be our lead turbo guy? Uh, then someone else at blue who was a turbo machinery engineer did find out about this and also want to join. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Cause there'd be no way I could pull that off myself. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that was it. So he approached me in March. Oh, actually, it's funny. This is our nine-year anniversary for the founding of Ursa, uh, fe uh, February 7th. Oh, um, today. Oh, my gosh. So today, yeah, we actually have a little celebration um, today after that. Uh, and so, yeah, Joe had quit. I think today is the day after Joe quit Blue Origin. I joined in October as the first employee. So Joe had spent the majority of 2014 no, sorry, 2015, um, really getting our seed money together. So um, that period of time I was waiting, I kind of waited a bit to find out whether or not he would get money for the company. Um, so I hadn't, you know, jumped in yet, but he ended up getting $2 million um, uh, from, uh, no, sorry, $3 million for our angel round, which is essentially like your seed round um, before you go to institutional investors. One of which was Dale uh, from Dale's Pale Ale. Uh, he founded Oscar Blues. I don't know if you've heard of this brewery at all. It's a lot more popular awesome. here in Colorado. That's awesome, though. Okay. Have you heard of this? No, maybe not. But um, Dale, so Joe helped Dale can beers in Dale's garage when Joe was in high school, when oh. Dale was just starting. And his whole pitch was to basically create craft beer in cans. So Dale was one of the first guys that was like, I'm not snobby. I'm not going to do craft beer in bottles. Because back in like early mid 2000s, all craft beer was bottle bottled because that was like the whole thing, right? Cans were like beneath the craft brewers. And so he yeah. started canning it. And that he was one of the very first guys to make that happen. Now you see craft brewers all in cans. Um, so of course, Oscar Blues was like a billion dollar company. And Joe got money from Dale to start a rocket company. And uh they had both grown up in Lyons, Colorado, so we just started in Colorado because why not? And yeah. uh, other reasons too for business uh, business reasons. But yeah, he he got the uh, investment, and so myself and another employee from Blue, uh, we both basically quit Blue at the same time and started at the same time in October. 
And uh, yeah, for a while, it were the three of us. And then we got three other engineers from Blue Origin over a period of a few months. And it basically was the core six of us from Blue that um, for the first 18 months of the company, we designed, built uh, the America's first oxygen-rich stage combustion engine, uh, got a test site, built the test stand, hot-fired it by 2017. And um, what's cool about that period of time is I was at Blue Origin working on the BE4 engine, which was going to be America's first OROC engine. I quit that program, started a company, built an engine, hot-fired it before Blue did, um, while that program was already moving. So it was, uh, yeah, it was unbelievable. I mean, that's why I quit Blue. I quit not because I was unhappy necessarily, but there was no other opportunity for me to go, you know, design a third of this engine and build the stand and hot fire it. You know, there's just no comparable experience I could have gotten anywhere else. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I don't know if you have questions. I could keep going. That's like the first milestone of the company. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so you guys, you guys move super quickly. I have a question about your testing days, just from mm -hmm. someone who loves to see a rocket engine go off. How many hot fires do you do in a day if you're doing stack fire testing? Certainly rate dependent on where we're at as a company, what we're doing. But we've we've done upwards of nine to 10 tests a day over wow. three stands. Um, and we could do more. We never really pushed it. But I mean, that was just business reasons to drive nine to 10 tests a day. Um, uh, and, you know, in the early days, yeah, I mean, it'd be one a day. You know, there was a, it was just getting through a ton of issues, right? Um, you know, the very first test actually exploded and we got one frame out of a 60 frame per second video that showed fire coming out of the right part of the engine, which was just enough to get our Series A funding because we didn't have enough money for another engine. And so, like, we blew the whole thing up. Went to a brewery afterward and we were all down on ourselves and like, okay, well, you know, where am I going to start looking for a job? Joe was ecstatic because he was just texting all of our investors like, here it is. You know, we hot fired it. We got it. And yeah, we got our Series A um, yeah. and it didn't have to go under. But, you know, awesome. if that tells you some of the progress, right, because then we had to order parts, get another engine. We did some subscale testing. So, you know, the first three years were very slow um, in a sense of. No, we're not testing three to four times a day uh, because we were we were developing core capabilities of that engine. Um, the other days we did, but we never really hit what I would call like a production level cadence until 2018, 2019, um, where we could start the engine reliably. We got the cycle operating uh, consistently. Um, and yeah, you know, compared to a team that would be more well-funded with more people, we could have gone faster, but we were also, you know, we were moving at the speed of the money that we had and, and the talent that we had. And, the, you know, there were multiple times we blow up two engines in a month and have to stand down for a couple months just to really reevaluate what we were doing. Um, yeah, hopefully that answers your question. But, you know, since then, we've built almost 100 of the Hadley engines. Uh, we've accumulated over 100,000 seconds of total test time, well over thousands of tests. Um, so it's a very well vetted engine and ought, it should be first like here next Monday, um, which Ooh. would be awesome. Yeah. That's so exciting. I assume you're going to be there. So I won't be there. It's a Strata launch. Uh, they're flying their Talon hypersonic vehicle. It'll be the first privately funded hypersonic platform in the world and wow. fly to Mach 5 is the goal. And I can't say a whole lot without going through NDA stuff, but um, yeah. 
yeah, we're excited, right? Like we, we've been partners with Strata Launch for a long time. They've been great, uh, great to us. And, uh, you know, we're excited to be the first uh, propulsion supplier for them. So they, they fly this reusable vehicle for hypersonic testbed applications. Um, yeah. Limited crew oh, out there. We have a, we have a deployed team that'll be out there and yeah, we're okay. just, we're excited. Just to like install it and then. Yeah. You know, we, as a part of the company strategy, you know, we, we, um, we have a forward deployed customer uh, engineering team that will be on yeah. site with the customer getting through flight operations and uh, you know, getting ready for flight so yeah awesome that's so exciting okay i'm gonna have to i'm marking my calendar we're gonna be tuning in i'll make the whole lab do <laughs> yeah well. You, well you may not i'll say you may not get much out of it um okay I'll, there will be a press release if it's successful <laughs> okay that's all i'll say <laughs> i don't know how it's gonna go uh, yeah, and yeah. too it's not like yeah you know it's a that's yeah, flight you know uh, it's a drop test uh, somewhere remote over the ocean and that sort of thing. So, but it will, yeah, it'll hit the news um, yeah. at some point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll keep an eye out. I'll keep an eye out. Um, so you have all these Hadley engines that are um, well tested. What was it like to fire the first uh, 50,000 pound force engine compared to these other ones that are not nearly as powerful? What was that like? Were you there? Yeah, I was. Um, and it was bigger, um, certainly. Uh, it was way cool. Yeah, it was, it was way cooler uh, in the sense that it just kicked up way more dirt. Um, it sort of made more noise, but we actually did a lot of work uh, that I was pushing for to make sure that the sound wasn't going to be way worse in terms okay. of we have a neighborhood next to our test site. So we have these uh -huh. giant concrete walls and, and dirt berms and uh, that it like basically circled the entire stand. And uh, we did a pretty good job of making sure that we did the right level of acoustic engineering to make sure that it actually is not that much louder than a Hadley test. Cool. Um, and yeah, so to be honest, it was, yes, it was amazing. From a technical yeah. achievement standpoint, the chamber pressure much higher off the bat the turbo pump assembly, we got to well over 100% power in the first go with the first set of equipment. Um, and it is America's highest performing kerosene liquid rocket engine um, ever tested. And yeah. uh, we, we ran several tests of the very first serial number of that engine without it blowing up. You know, like all of those things were a huge improvement over the Hadley program's early days, obviously, because we learned a lot of hard lessons and had a much better team. We, we've hired a lot of great engineers here. Um, so that's really the way to summarize Ripley. It was just like higher performance done the right way the first time with an expert team. That's what I take away from it. Uh, yes, the wow factor was was definitely there. Um, but also it Hadley tested just specifically where we stand uh, in the acoustics of it. It's, it is pretty jarring <laughs> to go watch one yeah. in the field uh, yeah. just as much so as a Ripley, honestly. Um, yeah. So. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. You guys have come so far. I can't, can't even fathom all this context you see, as you see that one success, you see all those failures leading up to it and the small successes. Yeah. Um, so with that said, what's the biggest lesson you've learned in helping to build a propulsion company? Yeah, that's hard. There's a lot of lessons learned. I could go one on forever, but one of them, um, I would say 
there have been like maybe I'll 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 do two. Uh, well, the hardest lesson was just getting the tech to work uh, the first go, and that's really the story of the early phase of the company where um, it's good to be ambitious, and it's actually good to not know how hard a problem is going to be before you try it. Because if you knew how hard it would be, you probably wouldn't try it. Right. And there's a lot of reasons to say something won't work, something's dumb, uh, you know, six people getting that first engine hot fired and everything. Um, yeah, pretty remarkable. Uh, right. It was certainly a prototype that didn't hit full power and exploded, whatever. But the, the achievement, um, had we known how hard the road would be, uh, we may not have like tried to go do it. So that's like lesson one is don't be afraid of what you don't know. And I'm employing that now um, as we're growing our solids division, right? We're tackling another giant and another entrenched industry as a new player. And we're doing all the same things all over again. Um, uh, so that's one. The other was, I think I've learned just how hard it is to run a business. Um Here's the 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 soundbite. It's one thing to spend an investor's money. Um, it's actually really easy to do that, and it's actually depending on the industry and the time and and what year it is. It's easy to get investor dollars and go spend them. It's another thing to turn that into something sustainable, and that's really been the story of last year, um, where you know we've made a lot of really hard decisions uh, as the economy's changed as. We're trying to close the business model on our liquids engines, which are very expensive, hard to make um, from a just first principles standpoint. However, still actually very cost competitive and high performing compared to the rest of the industry. However, um, you know, making sure that you've got the right uh, solvent customer base. We, you know, our, our customer base over the last year has really fallen out. So we were hitting a rate of one engine a week. Uh, production rate throughout the first half of last year, which was a tremendous goal for us to be able to achieve. But then our entire backlog went from over 200 engines to uh, a handful. And um, that's fine in the sense that our business model, and that's one of the reasons I was attracted to the business model in the first place, as a propulsion supplier, we can, uh, you know, have many different bets. You know, we can have uh, many different liquid engine products that are fielded in different um, launch classes or end use applications, but also propulsion is needed across a bunch of different business sectors from hypersonics to solids to liquid. So lucky for us, you know, we've been able to adapt and, and it's really shown that the business model is um, pretty resolute in that way. However, um, yeah, crossing that bridge toward profitability, making sure the business model closes, transitioning from a venture back company to something that is, uh, you know, sustainable, uh, especially in this industry, which this industry doesn't know what it wants. Uh, mm -hmm. I could definitely say that it's growing. Uh, there are growing pains both internally with our company, but externally with the market. Um, that has all been wrapped up into one big lesson. Um, and we're, you know, on the right track, in my opinion, in terms of making sure we're diversified, do, making the right business decisions, developing the right products at the right times, the right customers. Um, but that has all been a massive lesson learned. Yeah, you guys have such a business mindset along with that engineering brain. I don't know. And you didn't go to school for that one. You've just learned it, which is yeah, crazy. The hard way. 
<laughs> yeah, I can tell. Um, so I know that you're expanding into solids and that you're very involved in that. Are you leveraging your college lab experience with this solids expansion? Because I know it's not as used across industry. Yes, a thousand percent. Um, in fact, the more and more I dig into solids and the solid rocket motor industry, the more I realize that the gap between what we were doing at USC and where the industry is is way closer than I had imagined. You know, in some ways, I had thought a lot of, you know, we're doing a bunch of amateur stuff out in the desert. It's cool. It's groundbreaking. It's, you know, happy to say USC is at the forefront of a lot of what the solids teams are doing within the collegiate yeah. space. But the leap between what we were doing in college and what the industry does is way narrower than I thought, um, which is awesome. And so all the basic fundamental knowledge of how solids are made, how they're engineered, the engineering challenges you face while developing them, anything from composite cases to insulation to mixing the propellant, right? Uh, the nozzles, I mean, it's it's one-to-one. -one. And um, it has helped me a lot just start running with developing the right team, hiring the right people, picking a lot of the goals that we need to you know hit and aim at uh, near term and long term so yeah it's been tremendous um so for example you know we're the usc traveler motor like two three hundred pounds propellant or or you know i don't know where the design point is now um yeah. you know that's we're aiming at the same thing here um that are you know potentially fielded uh you know munitions for the army and navy um mm -hmm. in that class range and and composite cases uh, similar propellant um, uh, chemistry. I mean, all the chemistry is pretty much similar across most platforms. Uh, and uh, manufacturing processes are similar, although, you know, we have more capital, we have more engineers, right? So we can yeah. we can go that extra length and making sure that the manufacturing processes are repeatable. You know, that's hard in a collegiate space yeah. when yeah. you've got a lot of turnover and new students are learning at the same time. Um, but yeah, no, it, the, the experience has been tremendous from my usc time and uh yeah i probably would have a much uh, larger deficit right now if i hadn't had those experiences for sure yeah awesome here good yeah. <laughs> all this work will go to something that's good all right so i always end with the same two questions for everyone uh so the first one is what's the most meaningful connection you've made within your career and why like a connection again, with someone yes with someone, preferably a person Meaningful. or a group of people? Uh, it's hard to answer that, but I mean, meaningful is my connection with Joe, probably. Yeah. Um, not to be cliche or pick the obvious answer, but, you know, Joe and I worked together in the lab as students. Um, and I think he's got all of those personality quirks required to be a CEO. Uh, yeah. that uh, I think are awesome to see. And he has done a tremendous amount, uh, obviously, building this company, right? As a CEO from day one, you know, he's helped tell the story and provide the vision and drive the business model and and get the investors and the customers and, and do all of that legwork. While myself, on the other hand, uh, have played well against his strengths as someone who is boots on the ground engineering, building teams, managing groups, and um, yeah, meaningful connection. You know, I think it's been great to to know Joe or else I wouldn't have this opportunity, right? And to, you know, side by side with him, help build this thing. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, by far, I think is the most meaningful connection. 
um, that I made, and that was at USC. So. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Very good answer. Okay. Your next question is advice that you'd give your 18-year-old self. Yes. Twice. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I keep landing on just keep doing what you're doing. Like I, maybe I, you know, there, like I mentioned, I, there were some certainly critical points uh, at my time at USC where I was questioning whether I was doing the right thing or, or what have you. Um, but if I could go back in time, I wouldn't have really done anything differently fundamental. Um, right. And because I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to to be where I'm at now and have the experiences I've had throughout my career. Um, and I still continue to choose to be here because I believe that this is the best place for me to be. And, uh, you know, going back to my 18 year old self, uh, yeah, I don't know if I would have given myself any advice other than just, uh, just be ambitious. You know, I think don't, don't, uh, don't shy away from ambition. Um, and, and, you know, not to be afraid of taking on challenges, which I, I haven't been, but it's not always easy. Um, you know, even at Blue Origin, you know, when I quit to join URSA, uh, my mom was crying on the phone because I had, get, you know, thrown away, literally reporting to the president of Blue Origin, like a, a dream job that I quit in 14 months because I just wanted to try something harder. And, uh, yeah. you know, that'd be my advice. Yeah, to continue to do those things. So yeah, maybe that's anticlimactic. It should be you know, more... F- fundamental than that but no I like that I like that mindset I like your mindset of what I've just kind of learned about you in this small period of time is that you're just looking to the next thing and you're not too worried about like the far future maybe once you joined Ursa and you're really trying to build this company after those two years of Joe paying you but yeah getting that first experience just going to the next thing and not worrying too much and just enjoying learning what you're learning you know there was one thing uh one other lab member told me that I'll never forget, and it's somewhat related, but we were talking about going to grad schools, you know, picking, like you mentioned Purdue, right? Um, what made you think about that? And he said, you know, you'll be happy wherever you land. And yeah. it sounds simple, but it's profound because it's true, right? Um, okay, maybe in edge cases where someone's like, I legitimately picked the worst school I could have picked and this ruined my life. It's very right. rare to hear that. Um what he's trying to, I think what I took away from that, and I've always remembered it, is that you're going to have one life path. You're going to pick one. Um, and so when people think about the future, they continue to think about, I've got like five different paths that I'm going to take in my life, whether it's my career or my college, uh, the major I choose, uh, you know, but you only have one actual path and you're going to end up following that path, whatever it ends up being. Like, I think humans have a fundamentally miscarriage. There, there's no such thing as probability is what I'm trying to say. The probability yeah. is invented. Uh, it's a, it's an abstract invented concept that humans use to rationalize uncertainty, but there actually is no uncertainty of the future. Um, so stop worrying about it. Just do yeah. it. Do the right thing right now and stop worrying about your career so much. Um, just make sure like today you're doing the best. You know, that doesn't mean don't financially plan, don't invest in 401k. You know, that's, you know, I'm trying to, you know, be um, more philosophical here, but um, that that goes back to what I mentioned is my advice back then wouldn't have been much other than to just keep doing what I'm doing, which is 
I don't know where Ursa is going to be in two years. I hope we're successful. I'm very confident we will be. And I have only that, you know, another thing I like to say is optimism is a choice. You can decide to be optimistic because uh, you don't know the future, right? So you can decide yeah. to have an opinion on it. Like, how can you have an opinion on something that hasn't happened yet? So you can choose to be optimistic. Um, and so that all culminates in focus on the now, be optimistic, because you can choose to be, and you're going to have one path in life, and that's fine. And so just stop worrying about it so much. Um, it's like the most advice I could give to anyone at USC, too. Just try hard now. That's yeah. It. Yeah. Well, I love that. I love the philosophical conversations. That's so good. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, those are all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Space Spiels. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a fellow space nerd and follow us and rate the podcast. It really helps us out. I'll talk to you next week.